Welcome, lovely people, to The Word is Resistance. I am Audrey Gale Hall, pronouns she or they or z. I'm a Unitarian Universalist, a swamp monster, and a surge faith organizing intern. I am a settler in the inherited lands of Karankawakadla, Akokisa, Ishak, and Bidai people uh, of the Coahuiltec and Garza band and of the Eshtogna or Carrizo Comacrudo tribe of Texas. Here on the Gulf Coast of Somisec on occupied territory known temporarily as Houston. You just heard a live recording of Dr. Vincent Harding's Song for the Freedom Movement from a multiracial movement choir practice in Denver, Colorado in December 2014, being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for the podcast. On The Word is Resistance, we explore what our Christian sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are living today. What do these sacred stories have to teach us as white folks about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is a project of Surge Faith and Surge Action, and is particularly designed for white people. White people talking to other white people about race and white supremacy. We believe white people like us, like me, have a responsibility to commit ourselves to resisting white supremacy, to speaking up and showing up and disrupting white supremacy where we find it, and that means wherever we find it including in our own religious traditions. We'd love to hear from you, dear listeners, especially from folks of color who may be listening, about how we're doing. And I'll share about methods for giving us feedback at the end of the episode. This week, I'm going to be focusing on the Sunday Gospel reading from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. This passage tells us about a time when Jesus meets someone named Zacchaeus, a wealthy resident of Jericho who he spots watching him from up in a sycamore fig tree. I want us, as white lovers of Jesus, precious citizens of a Christian empire, to take these next 20 minutes as an opportunity to find ourselves in that crowd full of people who get pissed off that Jesus is willing to go visit wealthy Zacchaeus' house. We might also be able to find ourselves up in the sycamore fig tree, looking down at the masses from a position of relative safety, feeling our hesitancy to join the crowd on the road of liberation. White folks, especially those of us born into wealth or even moderate financial comfort, and especially those of us who find ourselves caught in the contradiction between our need to make a living in this empire and our desire to avoid participating in its most harmful systems, we've got a lot to learn from Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector in Roman-occupied Palestine, held accountable in some ways, mostly grumbling, by his neighbors 
for collaborating with the Herodian dynasty to extract resources from the people of Jericho. And in this story, Zacchaeus is called on to become someone else. A couple months back, Surge organizers Aaron Heaney and Hillary Moore had a conversation on Facebook Live with the illustrious Adrian Marie Brown on the topic of calling white people in to strengthen and grow our movements. If you haven't gotten a chance to hear that conversation or read its transcription, you can check out that link in today's show notes. When I watched the recorded webinar, I screen shared it on Zoom with some white comrades in the Houston chapter of Southerners on Newground. When I watched it, I felt challenged. I think the whole crew felt challenged, more or less. We paused the video frequently to talk with each other about how out of reach it feels to have an abiding faith, in Aaron Heaney's words, that people are worthy of transformation and can transform. I don't know about y'all, beloveds, but for me, going up among mostly only white Christians at the edge of the Bible Belt, and spending so much of my coming-of-age time actually resisting identification with those people, with my people, it actually brings out a bodily response in me to consider that our movement really actually needs a critical mass of even those folks who I cannot yet find common ground with, or who are unwilling to use my proper pronouns, or who just can't wrap their heads around why abolition? Why that word? That night, watching the webinar, it was especially tough for me to receive the wisdom of one of my comrades who gently reminded me that the people it's easy for me to trust are not necessarily the same as the people I have a responsibility to organize and build community with. Here's one more quote from the webinar before I get to today's lectionary reading. This one is from Adrian Marie Brown. Whiteness as a project is about who gets to belong and who doesn't get to belong. That's what they said. And they went on to describe how dangerous it can be, how serious the consequences can be when white people in this violent culture are pushed out of belonging. Some of us, Adrian reminded us, end up on the news, having done something heinous and sensational. But millions of others of us are disaffected and unnoticed by the majority of white folks in movement, remaining out of touch with our own cravings for liberation. That's what I want us to listen for in this story. Zacchaeus might be like some of our cousins, and he might be just like us. Let's dig in. Here is our reading from the Gospel according to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, in the New Revised Standard Version, Updated Edition. He, he being Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but... On account of the crowd, he could not, because he was so short in stature. 
So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. disclosure, from childhood onward, I have not liked Zacchaeus. All Luke tells us about this man is his short stature, his economic position within the empire, he's a tax collector and he's wealthy, and that the people of Jericho don't like him, which I suspect was the case even before he climbed that tree. I knew him as a kid, as the wee little man from the Sunday morning song, from the coloring pages in Sunday school, whose face I remember shading green with dollar signs on the cheeks. It confused me to learn that tax collectors were bad guys. That's the language I had. Because my dad was a CPA, a certified public accountant who did people's taxes. I knew that. I made the inference that Zacchaeus and my, job, and my dad had the same job, which is kind of true. And so every time Zacchaeus came up in Sunday school, I worried that maybe people in the church, even those same people who were clients of my dad, who came over to our house and seemed happy to see their tax returns, whatever that was, I didn't really know at the time. Maybe those folks secretly hated my dad and grumbled about our family with our gated neighborhood and our summer vacations and our new backpacks every school year. Today, still, Zacchaeus reminds me that my class status, my family's income, my safety net, my university education, my citizenship, my whiteness, are inseparable from the systems of domination we live under. I don't like this guy I grew up hearing about because he looks too much like my shadow. I think... What worried me the most as a kid was that if people grumbled against my dad, like the crowd in this story, if they did that, maybe they were right. Maybe CPAs were going to hell, like I learned about tax collectors, who in Jericho would have been hated, especially when they hid in trees to avoid the crowds of regular degular people and get a special balcony view of the Messiah. Let me tell you a little something about the trees of Jericho at this time in history. Jericho, Yericho in 
Hebrew and Riha in Arabic, is a city in what is now the illegally occupied West Bank territory in Palestine. Before and during the Roman occupation, according to the Greek historian Strabo, the city was known for having all kinds of cultivated and fruitful trees. Mostly palm trees, which feature in the next chapter of Luke, and balsam trees. Now, balsam is known most famously for its use as incense. It's known to have healing properties and high monetary value and would have been a major taxation source for Rome-occupied Jericho. Mark Antony had conquered Jericho and gifted his wife, Cleopatra, with its groves of balsam trees. Now she turned around and girlbossed. She leased those groves back to Herod the Great, who was the non-Jewish Roman-appointed ruler of Judea. So Herod's subjects, mostly Jewish people, mostly not citizens of the Roman Empire, had to pay taxes for the right to cultivate their own occupied land and balsam trees, which would then be used to generate revenue for the puppet monarch, not for them. And then here's Zacchaeus, helping enable it all, and even profiting off the top. He confesses, well, he uses the word if, but he confesses he's been cheating people by having them pay extra taxes and skimming some for himself. Who is this guy to get a private audience with Jesus? What did he do to deserve such an honor? What do we do with Zacchaeus? What do we do with our people when they cause harm, even over and over, even seven times, 77 times? What do we do with our people when their entire livelihoods might depend on contributing to systems of harm? So it makes sense that the crowds would grumble, right? Luke is always reminding us that Jesus drew crowds. They press around him, says Luke 5. Luke 8 adds that the people are coming from cities all over. When Jesus withdraws to the city of Bethsaida in Luke 9, the crowds figure out where he's hiding and follow him there. In Luke 14, we learn that crowds are not only waiting for him at key destinations on his route, but they're actually traveling along with him throughout his ministry. In almost every case, where the crowds come up, the scriptures let us know the people's motivations. To hear his words, touch his body, and be healed. Like the bleeding woman in Luke 8, who squeezes through the crowd in Capernaum just to make contact with even the hem of his clothing. When Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he's just made contact with another seeker of healing. Earlier that day, a man who Mark says is named Bartimaeus. Luke doesn't name him. Bartimaeus was sitting at the edge of Jericho, begging. We don't know what for. Uh, but he cries out for mercy and asks, once he learns who is near, that Jesus restore his sight. Okay, it's all the same crowd from that day and our story. They're following Jesus through the city, 
and deciding as a hive mind who is worthy of being brought into the Jesus parade. Listen again to chapter 19, verse 7, when Jesus heads to Zacchaeus' house. Ready? All who saw it began to grumble and said, He is gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. But here's chapter 18, literally the chapter before, verse 43, right when Bartimaeus receives his sight. Zacchaeus receives a guest, Bartimaeus receives a gift, and it says in that case, all the people, when they saw it, praised God. All the people, seeing what's happening and responding in these divergent ways. Think about how the masses respond to Zacchaeus' connection with Jesus versus their response earlier that day. Luke is creating a deliberate parallel between these two stories, I believe. It's even in the sentence structure when, quote-unquote, all the people see what Jesus is doing. There's that visual metaphor. What's the difference between these scenarios that leads to such different responses? It's kind of a slam-dunk question, right? One was an oppressor who gets singled out for the honor of hosting the Messiah at his house, and the other is a beggar who has his request granted to regain the ability of sight. One needed to repent and distribute his wealth, and the other needed to get his economic needs met, hence the begging, but prioritized the physical restoration of his sight. One is a victim of circumstance, the other an oppressor. We have here a binary between repentance and healing. But I want to suggest that actually in this story, Jesus helps the people, which we could understand to include us, helps the people understand that Zacchaeus himself is in need of healing. That his repentance or his willingness to transform and turn away from his behaviors in service of empire, to make reparations for his behavior, was the beginning of a healing process he can fully embrace only from within community, not as a pariah. This section of the gospel ends with Jesus saying, Today salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. Now in visualizing this scene, in imagining him saying these words, it's really unclear to me whether Jesus is still standing at the base of the tree with Zacchaeus, or in his house now. And it's unclear to whom he is speaking. Because, I mean, he says he, but if I was speaking to Zacchaeus, I I would say you. But who needs to hear this more, anyways? Zacchaeus or the crowds? Both? The translation I read earlier tells us that Jesus was speaking to Zacchaeus, but because of those pronouns, I want to say he's talking to the crowd. Who I think is us, much like Zacchaeus can be us. 
when Jesus says, he too is a son of Abraham. He's reminding the people, the same people from earlier that day who saw Bartimaeus, that like it or not, in spite of their different economic positions and the dramatically different levels of engagement with the masses following Jesus across Judea, Bartimaeus and Zacchaeus are part of the same community. And both need healing. Healing, not an easy way out of guilt. Healing, not the absence of rigor. Healing, not a free pass to good feelings. Not the forgiveness of those he has harmed. And not comfort. By saying that the Son of Man came to save the lost and implying that Zacchaeus is one of those lost people, Jesus defends his choice to visit Zacchaeus' house and not someone else more acceptable to the community at Jericho, someone who did not participate in the Roman occupation of their place. But what about that other part, save the lost? I grew up learning that Zacchaeus was saved because he became Christian in that moment. No longer a misguided Jew. This is part of the anti-Semitic story many Christian communities and authorities tell about how the majority of the Jewish community at the time did not join the Jesus movement because they were supposedly misguided or just unwilling to understand. This story relies on Christian supremacy and the idea that to be non-Christian is to be lost. Instead, by lost, I think we should understand Jesus to be talking about a lack of healing, a misorientation towards harm. That kind of healing takes years and involves community care and doesn't mandate that you change your religious affiliation. The Greek word Luke uses here that I want us to associate with healing is really often translated as salvation. It's the word in Greek soteria, with the verb sozo, often translated as save. But it can also mean to make someone whole, to rescue, and to heal. And Luke who was a physician, doesn't seem to actually be talking about salvation in the heaven after you die or religious conversion or avoiding hell kind of way that I grew up with. He also doesn't talk about soteria as letting Jesus into your heart. Think about it. He uses that word for what Jesus does for Bartimaeus in chapter 18, restoring his sight. For what Jesus does with the ten lepers in chapter 17, for the bleeding woman I mentioned in chapter 8. It's all the same word as the soteria that has visited Zacchaeus' house. This was Jesus' thing. He was a healer. That's at least half the reason why crowds of people experiencing pain and suffering wanted to be near him bodily all the time. And notice Jesus doesn't say to Zacchaeus, your faith has made you well, like he tells the tenth leper and so many other people who receive healing. No, he says, Soteria has visited this house. Visited. Temporarily. Jesus doesn't let Zacchaeus off the hook. Nobody's declared well. Not yet. 
he hears Zacchaeus's promise of reparations, then turns toward the crowd, the audience of the story, the ones to whom the reparations are due, turns towards us, the ones who have movements to build, and invites us to decide what we are going to do about this man, who we may intensely dislike, and who is now in a position to see the possibility of his own path towards wholeness. This is the tender mercy Zechariah prophesied about in Luke 1 when Jesus was a baby. He said Jesus would give God's people knowledge of soteria, of healing, I want to say, through forgiveness and tender mercy, as opposed to previously when the prophets spoke of soteria in terms of salvation from the enemies of Israel, when soteria was a matter of military victory and national liberation, first and foremost. That's still there. But what we're seeing is that Zacchaeus' healing fits in with the liberation of his nation, even as he seems to be in the position of traitor. The prophecy helps contextualize how Luke's gospel views that thing we call salvation, not merely as an escape from conquest or pain, but also as a softness, a vulnerability, a tender mercy, which could only be brought into the world by a child. Jesus is warning people not to turn Zacchaeus into an other and lock him out of belonging. Because, yeah, maybe Zacchaeus only gave half his wealth away when literally one chapter earlier, Jesus actively calls his wealthy followers to sell all their possessions and give the money away. And, yeah, maybe his apology is kind of problematic with that big word, if. Like, if I cheated anyone. Like, you know what you did. And maybe he knew in his heart of hearts that before Jesus arrived at his house, reparations were still desperately needed. Maybe he put it off until the teacher was right there in front of him. Maybe that's why he was so quick to say to Jesus, Look, Lord, he wanted to be seen. And that's pretty annoying to me, to be honest. But this imperfect moment is not the end-all, be-all of Zacchaeus' path into accountability. It is the beginning of a process. That's how liberation works, right? Not an event but an unfolding. Jesus is speaking to us on our own paths, slowly unfolding ourselves, asking us where we will draw our lines of belonging, asking us how ready we are to hold the tension of both causing and receiving harm, to hold each other in our movements, knowing that each of us has been complicit has taken too much, has upheld systems of domination in small and large ways, asking how far our movements are willing to go to save, to sozo, to heal ourselves in this world, asking who we are willing to bring along with us. Amen and blessed be.
lovelies, we've got two calls to action for y'all this week. First, do take the time to catch up on that conversation from this summer between Adrian Marie Brown, Hillary Moore, and Aaron Heaney, if you want. And bonus points if you follow the transcript or listen to their voices in the company of white folks you are building trust with. That link is in the show notes. And secondly, this one might be more challenging, take some time to connect this week with a Zacchaeus beside yourself in your community. Someone who rubs you the wrong way, who you see as having a long way to go, who just doesn't seem to get it like you get it, who sometimes seems to be up in a sycamore tree. This could be someone in your local surge chapter, your faith community, or another group you spend time with. Maybe even someone who you know to have caused harm at some point. Someone who feels safe enough to talk with. This doesn't have to be formal. Please don't make an agenda. Just check in. Reach out. Get them on the phone if you can. Get to know more about this Zacchaeus's story and what liberation means to them. Make an internal commitment to moving towards, not away from, that particular Zacchaeus and your relationship to them. And maybe don't tell them I told you to call. That could get dicey. Thanks, as always, for joining us. We'd love to hear from you all, and especially folks of color and non-Christian folks, by commenting on our SoundCloud or Twitter or Facebook pages or filling out the survey on our podcast page at surge.org. Give us a like or rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're checking out this podcast. And remember that you can find out more about Surge at surge.org, S-U-R-J, where you can sign up for Surge faith updates and find transcripts for every episode, which include references, resources, and action links. Next week, we'll have a resistance word from the Reverend Kelsey Beebe. And finally, a huge thanks, as always, to our sound editor, Claire Hitchens. Claire, I hope you're finding these audio files in the Google Drive just fine. Y'all, blessings on you and yours this week as you rest and play and build. May we draw the circle of beloved community wider and wider and wider. Love and liberation to you all. Until next time, I'm Audrey Gale Hall. <laughs>